So our sermon text this morning before Christmas is Mark eleven twelve through 25. I will read that. Um, you can open up and follow along, or you may just listen as we've been listening to uh, these wonderful texts read all morning. Mark eleven twelve through 25. On the following day, when they, Jesus and the disciples, came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowds, all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses." So we've been actively remembering this morning God's redemptive plan of salvation from beginning to end. That is uh, being fulfilled in and through Jesus. Our passage this morning really is an illustration of all that we've been remembering through song and scripture. It illustrates for us why we needed Jesus to come. Why his first advent was necessary. Uh, In this passage, too, we see the answer to our Advent questions that we've been asking. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come the first time? And what awaits for us at Jesus' return? And so we remember in this Advent season his first coming, and we anticipate his second coming. Now recall that here in our passage, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem as the promised Messiah and son of David that everyone has been waiting for. And he comes not on a steed conquering, he comes humble on a donkey under the cries of Hosanna, Yahweh, save. And he enters bringing mercy, not judgment. Yet here we enter into a narrative where Jesus' first act as king, if you will, seems to have a lot to do with judgment. So what's going on? Well, we cannot fully appreciate the mercy that God has in store for us if we do not first fully appreciate the judgment that we deserve. 
We cannot fully understand the reality of God's mercy and how breathtaking it is if we do not first recognize that we stand under his judgment. So, here in our passage, we see uh, three scenes. We see a fig tree, we see Jesus in the temple, and we come back to the fig tree. Mark puts these together for a reason, right? So that we can understand them together. The fig tree... The fig, the fig tree's fruitlessness illustrates Israel's fruitlessness and faithlessness. And Jesus' cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple point to the judgment and the curse that Israel rightly deserves for their evil. But in the midst of all of this judgment and cursing shines forth the light of gospel forgiveness. The very light that descended on that Christmas day 2,000 years ago to you and me. So let's take a look. We'll consider this passage, even though there's three scenes, we'll consider it in two parts. Verses 12 through 19, we see fruitless and faithless. See the fig tree scene, the first scene, and Jesus in the temple. And then in verses 20 through 25, we see faith and forgiveness. And the main message we want to take away this morning before Christmas is what we've been remembering up to this point. King Jesus became your curse and your cleansing for your forgiveness. So look with me at verses 12 through 19, fruitless and faithless. We will first consider Jesus' interaction with the fig tree in verses 12 through 14. Let's just note a couple of things about this scene that we've already read through. First, we must acknowledge that Jesus is not reacting the way he is. He sees a fig tree in leaf in the distance, and he's hungry, and he comes to it, and it has no fruit, and he curses it. Jesus is not throwing some emotional, divinely emotional fit here. Just remember, Jesus has already gone into the temple— He's looked around, he's taken stock, and he left. Jesus is coming in with a plan that he's thought of. This isn't reactive in emotion. Jesus has thought through what he's doing. And even here, we see that Jesus has a purpose with what he's doing. Furthermore, Jesus has lived in this region for 30-plus years. Mark notes for us that it was not the season for figs, it's highly likely that Jesus would know when and when not to expect figs. So this is not some divinely emotional tantrum here. Second, we might think, well, this innocent tree, this poor tree, gets cursed. Well, Jesus did not do this tree wrong. Jesus is the king the creator of the universe, he has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation. And here is the astonishing part. The astonishing reality is that this tree exists in the first place. In light of man's sin and creation's corruption because of our sin, it's a mercy that we, let alone this tree, are even in existence at this point in time when Jesus acts. Okay, so those first two observations. So why then does Jesus curse this tree? 
He does it in order to make a priceless point to his disciples and to us whom he loves. To his disciples who are seeing it and to us who are reading it today. What is that point? Well, consider the image here. The tree has the appearance of life in leaf, but it is fruitless. Now, again, Jesus isn't deceived. But what's the point? The point is, where there is life, there should be fruit. We can't fully understand this image if we don't see it in relation to Jesus' judgment of Israel in the temple. That's why Mark puts them together. Again, Israel, God's people, should be a fruitful people. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like, what? A tree planted by water that sends out its roots in by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Those who trust in the Lord are fruitful. Where the life of God is, there is to be fruit. But fruitlessness leads only one place, curse and death. Fruitlessness rightly deserves judgment. So God intended for and intends Israel, God's covenant people, and even if we were to go all the way back to creation, he intended humanity, his his image bearers whom he created to be fruitful because of the life they have in him, not anything they have in themselves, but because of who he is, our fountain of life. If there's no fruit, that obviously means there's a disconnect between us and the fountain of life. So God's people are to be fruitful. Anything less deserves judgment and curse. So Jesus is illustrating a point he is about to make. This is why Mark lets us know the disciples hear what Jesus says. They're meant to. He wants them to. So here in the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus sets the table for what he is about to do in the temple. Fruitlessness points to faithlessness. We move then to verses 15 through 19 where Jesus comes into the temple and begins to drive out those who are buying and selling, overturning tables and then he'll offer a teaching that comes with his judgment. So upon entering Jerusalem, Jesus enters immediately and is dry into the temple and is driving out those who buy and those who sell. So not only the sellers, but also the buyers. Now that's important. What are these buyers and sellers doing? Well, let's consider, uh, uh, let's just think about what's going on in the temple, right? Temple worship, animal sacrifice, these uh, there are those who are poor who cannot do, who do not have their own animals for sacrifices, so they'll come and buy a pigeon for sacrifice. Then there are those who who perhaps have an animal, but it has a blemish, so they'll come and and get one without a blemish. There are pilgrims coming to Jerusalem from all over. Some may not have animals with them, rams or cattle, so they buy a sacrifice. These. Uh, Commentators, theologians agree these, these, these sellers are, are providing a vital service for worship in the temple. Uh, but the problem here is, is, is perhaps there, there could be some extortion happening. I would, not, I would not put that past sinful man that there are some, some uh, 
unsavory means by which uh, these animals are being sold and resold wouldn't put that past them. But the main problem here is the location of the activity and the purpose that that location is meant for. So let's consider who Israel is for a second and, and what their intended purpose is. And we've seen some of it this morning. The house of Israel was the house of God. Uh, They are identified by God dwelling in their midst in his house, the temple. So the house of Israel is identified with God dwelling in them. This is what makes them distinct. We know Moses says this in Exodus. God, if you will not go with us, then, then don't send us because it is your presence with us that makes us distinct from all the peoples on the earth. They were to be God's treasured possession, who loved God with all their heart, soul, and might. They were to be God's treasured possession, who loved their neighbor as themselves. And they were to be a conduit of God's blessing to the nations. Israel's relationship with God was meant to be a light and a witness of his glory to the nations. Now, the location, then, of this buying and selling takes place in the courts of the temple, and it's fairly agreed upon these courts. So the outer courts are the Gentile courts, that is, the courts of the nations where this buying and selling is happening. This was where foreigners, people of other nations who were not a part of God's people, could actually come in and catch a glimpse of God's relationship with his people. Catch a glimpse of the fruitfulness and the life and the faithfulness they have and his glory. And they might long for that as well. Yet because of the buying and selling that has taken place in the temple, sellers are being uh, Christ removing the sellers. He's also removing the buyers. And anybody passing through Because all of this activity in this sacred space of worship is keeping the nations from even getting a look at who God is. How can they hope in what they do not know? So this is why Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7 in his judgment. This is the reason Jesus is doing what he's doing. He says, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And just look at the context of that passage at some point when you have time. God declares his desire in Isaiah 56 for the foreigner, for the outcast. He says, if the foreigner joins himself to the Lord to love, to the, to love the name of the Lord, then they are welcomed by God. For God gathers the outcasts. This is at the core of God's redemptive plan. That he wants to work through Israel. They are meant to be his treasured, his loved people, and love him in such a way that those who are not of God's people would be longing to be. That's what the purpose of these outer courts were for, for the nations to see. They would be added and be the fruit of the people. Yet, what have God's people done? They have made it, according to Jesus, a den of robbers. Again, Jesus quotes Old Testament. He's pointing us to Jeremiah 7.10. There, the word robber, it means more than just merely stealing things. In context, it actually points to all manner of unfaithfulness 
in all manner of evil, violence, violence against God, violence against his covenant, and violence against others. It's an it's a all-encompassing word. Jesus then attributes the people's use of this part of the temple not to their eagerness to worship, not to their eagerness to have right sacrifices. Rather, he attributes it to their sinfulness, their faithlessness. This activity is a symptom of their faithlessness. They have not been God's treasured possession. They have not loved him, and they have certainly not sought to to love their neighbors. They have not borne good fruit. They have borne evil fruit. They have not borne the fruit of the nations coming to them. They have actually driven the nations away. They have been faithless and are therefore fruitless. The nations are not coming to God. They have not been blessed. Your offspring will be a blessing to the nations. In your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. They are not being a blessing. But there's Something interesting in Jesus' actions as well, his act of judgment, results in what? It actually results in cleansing. The sin that was present in God's house is gone. He drives it out. Jesus drives out. Jesus cleanses through judgment. And Jesus the King has every right to bring that judgment, to curse, because of the fruitlessness and faithlessness, but it is through that judgment, it is through judgment that God will bring cleansing for his people. Look at the second part of our passage this morning, verses 20 through 25. We're back at the fig tree. After all this, Mark takes us back to this fig tree. It's no more. It's, it's withered to the roots, dead, destroyed, and, and Peter attributes it to Jesus' curse. This is what fruitlessness and faithlessness, bearing evil, sinful fruit, rightly deserves. God even tells his people, after he brings them out of Egypt and on Sinai, covenants with them to make him his people, he says, I lay before you blessing, life and blessing, or curse and death. If you be my treasured possessions, if they would love him with all their heart and soul, Love their neighbor as themselves, they would receive life and blessing. But if they refuse him and turn from him, work evil, hate their neighbor, are not his treasured possession, the only thing that awaits is death and curse. So now we would expect Jesus to explain for his disciples to be like, right, yeah, you see what I did with the fig tree is, that's what I was illustrating with what I did in the temple. You see how these two things go together? But that's not what Jesus says. What does he say? Jesus answered them, have faith in God. This is Jesus' primary response. Have faith in God. That's the main idea. Then everything else explains what he means by that. So Jesus uses a common idiom, a mountain being uprooted and thrown into the sea to describe what faith can do. It's meant to, to illustrate the idea it's, not, it's, it's a common idiom. It's not meant to be taken literally, but it, it illustrates this idea that things that are impossible with faith are possible. Why? How? Well, faith isn't without an object. We've seen this in Mark several places. 
Faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. Faith and its purpose is defined by its object, not the one who is exercising it. In fact, Jesus situates this entire discussion of faith into the idea of prayer. The person who says to the mountain to move is not believing in themselves to move the mountain. Someone else takes it up. Someone else casts it into the sea. This is why Jesus says, what you say will be done for you. Faith looks to someone else to make the impossible possible. God is the one who acts. It is not the amount of faith. It is about who the faith is in. And this keeps us from making a misstep here. What's that misstep? Well, we could understand this passage to mean that anything we ask God We'll get the yes answer to it if we just muster up enough faith, right? Is that how we should interpret this? Well, I don't think so. Why? Well, we've just seen two separate instances in verses previous of questions being asked of Jesus. First, in 1035 through 45, James and John come to Jesus with, it seems like, a lot of belief, a lot of confidence, borderline arrogant, right? And say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we, we want you to do for us, whatever we ask. That sounds like a lot of belief. They say, we want to sit at your right and left hand. And what happens? Do they get that answer? They don't get a yes. Why? Because their faith was not in God, their faith was in themselves. They were defining what their desires were. But we saw that when, when the object of faith is not separated from the faith, in the case of blind Bartimaeus, who came to, Hank came to Jesus and asked for mercy, that Jesus delighted to give him mercy. That's what the prayer of faith is. It's a prayer that aligns with God, aligns with his desires, aligns with his purposes, his will. That's what defines this faith we're talking about. That's what it means to ask in Jesus' name. It's in line with God and his purposes. And every request flows from that. So what what purpose does Jesus choose to highlight here in our passage? Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus uses the mountain as an illustration to begin his explanation of faith in God and he brings it home by commanding the disciples to forgive. Forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If faithlessness and fruitlessness deserve judgment, then the point that Jesus is making here to his disciples is you are not immune to that judgment. You may not have been in the temple buying and selling at that time, but guess what? You have trespasses that need to be forgiven. You will have trespasses that need to be forgiven. The biggest mountain that they should be begging God to uproot and cast into the sea is the mountain of their sin. 
What does faith in God look like? It looks like trusting in God to forgive. Trusting in his mercy. Now, sometimes, though, as we see here, it's harder to forgive the one who has wronged you than to seek out your own forgiveness from God. Anybody who has been wronged by somebody can, can sense that. I quickly go to God for, God, forgive me for this, but I can't forgive this person for what they've done to me. This is why Jesus makes this command first. The heart that trusts in God's mercy to give forgiveness is the heart that is quick to forgive. Because to hold on to un to hold on to unforgiveness is to actually reject God's forgiveness. To harden your heart to unforgiveness is not to confess that I am prone to unforgiveness and I need forgiveness for that sinfulness. So how do we get here? How do we put it all together? We see this, uh, the fruitlessness and unfaith and faithlessness and, and, and forgiveness Jesus' first act here looking a lot like judgment, but we come to realize it is actually mercy. King Jesus is showing his people, showing us that this is what our faithlessness and fruitlessness actually deserves. Deserves judgment. Deserves being cursed and, and withered away to the roots But this is not what God will give you. He will actually give you mercy and forgiveness. Instead, if you will but put your faith in Christ. Why? Because Jesus says, I am going to take that curse. More than that, I am going to become that curse that you deserve. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus says, you see that fig tree? withered away to the roots, that will be me. You see the judgment and wrath that came down on the, on the temple, that will be me. Jesus is the only fruitful and faithful one, our king, and the right representative of not only, uh, of not only the nation of Israel, but humanity as a whole. And he stepped in to take our place by becoming the curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus gave himself to, to become the curse so that we could be cleansed, to purify for himself a people for his possession. He was God's treasured possession where we should have been, where Israel should have been. He was the perfect treasured possession, and he became a curse so that we could once again be cleansed and become God's treasured possession. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses us from all sin. So God's son, his treasured possession, became the curse so that we might be God's possession again by receiving his forgiveness. Let's apply this two ways. We forgive and we pray. First, gospel faith forgives because God forgives. To, for, to for, uh, forgive, to be forgiven, not do in order to receive, but, but 
the one that desires God's forgiveness recognizes that we have it, understands I cannot hold on to unforgiveness because someone sinned against me. Christ himself, we sin only against God and God alone. And did he harbor that unforgiveness in his heart? No, he offered forgiveness freely to us. So we forgive. And by his forgiveness, Christ has made us what his people should have been, a house of prayer for all the nations. So, second, gospel faith prays. You, I, are the temple of God. And we have been made into a house of prayer for the nations. So the prayer of faith does one thing. It holds fast to and treasures who Jesus is. It recognizes that Jesus is the king who has won our forgiveness. The prayer of faith holds fast to and submits to why Jesus came the first time. He came to grant us that forgiveness by becoming our curse. And then the prayer of faith looks to align with and, and, uh, and awaits Christ's return. It looks to align with God's plan and awaits for Christ's return. And what awaits us at his return? Only blessing, no curse. It will look like Revelation 7, 20, 21, and 22 that we will read in a moment. A new heaven and a new earth with multitudes from all nations gathered around the throne of God, worshiping him. And until that day, our prayer prays to that end. Our prayer of faith is to that end, that God would gather in the nations. We look around this room, and we are the nations. And it's because of Christ's work. His house has truly become a house of prayer for the nations. So that's actually what we have the privilege to do right now. And it's built into our Christmas Eve Service, we call it the prayers of the people. We offer up our prayers to God, praising God for his faithfulness to fulfill his promises through Jesus. He promised to be that he promised to bless all the nations, and in Christ he has, and we are fruits of his work. And so we will praise God for that in our prayers, and we will also pray to the end that God would continue to bring in the nations. There are still those of peoples and nations who have not even heard the gospel. There are those that God has brought to us in Charlotte right now that he desires to to see his glory operate in us, his people, so that they would long to be a part of that family, that we would take the gospel to them and they would be added nations to the temple of God, praying to him. So that's what we'll do. I will begin our time of prayer, uh, praising God, thanking him, praying that he would continue to bring in the nations as he's promised and that he's doing and has done in Christ. And... Uh, I'll begin it, and then as you feel led, we'll take a time uh, for you to stand and pray. Uh, Whoever feels led, offer your prayers of praise to God, praying for the salvation of the lost. And then after a time, I'll close us.
and we'll responsively read from Revelation as we see where all of this is, is headed. So join with me in, in, in prayer. <clears throat> 